Good morning. All right, so our scripture reading today is from Acts 9, 1 through 19. So in your pew Bibles, that's on page 917. It'll give you a minute. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard much from many about this man, how evil he has been to your saints at Jerusalem, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Thank you, Lord. Well, it's one of the most radical transformations and conversions in all of church history. Really, all of history. And we want to enter the passage, not just look at it from afar. That's always our aim. And so the last, last week, it, admittedly, it was difficult to enter the pages of Acts through an Ethiopian eunuch. What do we have in common with him? Well, each one of us is also on a spiritual journey, seeking to understand, to know the truth, to make sense of life. Each one of us falls short, even through our best efforts, even though we might give ourselves to that pursuit or study or look hard, we fall short. Most of us know exactly what it feels like to not measure up, to be told, no, you don't belong. No, you're not worthy. Many of us know what it means to battle shame. 
Many of us have come to know that wealth, affluence, influence, authority, all are empty when it comes down to it. Though we've pursued them our whole life, when we achieve them, we find they don't satisfy. Most of us know what it feels like to be in the desert spiritually. Dry, parched. And for some, maybe that's your reality this morning as you find yourself here. So this is the Ethiopian eunuch. This is us. And we've been reminded of God's incredible love and pursuit. That's been our focus now for a few weeks. One of our core convictions as a church. Lost people matter to God and He wants them saved. And it seems that there is nothing He won't do to rescue. And there's no one who is outside of His reach. Thank you, Lord. Remind us. As difficult as it may have been to enter as an Ethiopian eunuch, brace yourselves, it may be more difficult to enter as Saul, the religious Pharisee, when we meet him here in Acts 9. Saul was persecuting the church. He was breathing out threats and murder. The, the, the Greek there brings up images of a wild, ravenous animal looking to devour, which is also similar wording used for the work of Satan, the enemy, to steal, to kill, to prowl around like a lion and look for, looking for one to devour. Saul is being used in that way. He stands pleased. When we first meet him, it's end of Acts 7. He stands pleased overseeing the stoning of an innocent man. Right here, we find him hunting down and arresting men and women who had fled Jerusalem, probably to escape him. He doesn't just let them go. He tracks them down in Damascus. And since you are all astute in your Middle Eastern geography, you know that Damascus is about 140 miles from Jerusalem. Talk about zealous and relentless to go find them, track them down, arrest them, and bring them back. All the while, Saul believes he is serving the Lord. He's doing this in the name of God. He is trying to eradicate these blasphemers who continue to proclaim that this insignificant nobody from Nazareth, a carpenter's son, born to a teenage virgin, is actually the promised Messiah. And he will not stand for it. And so he believes he is justified in every action. So what do you suggest we have in common with Saul? Have we or do we live according to our own perspectives? What we deem to be right. Our worldview. When you come to put your opinions and your perspective into fact and into truth, it's very difficult to have your mind changed, isn't it? It's the way then you live out your life. And my question to you would be, have you ever been wrong? Not just when you thought you'd made a mistake. I'm talking about really 
wrong. A way that you saw the world, you realized at some point later you were wrong. You were narrow-minded. You were blinded to what was actually true. And since most of us can resonate with that, we can enter the pages as Saul, who believed he was right, didn't even give it a second thought. It motivated everything he did. And he comes to find in a moment that everything he thought was wrong. Jesus was, in fact, alive. Jesus was who he said he was. He's radically changed. Or we could enter by knowing that what it means to be religious. To go through motions believing that we've done enough to earn God's approval or favor. Or God has shown us such favor in our life. We know we don't deserve it, but yet we try to live and pay Him back through our disciplines, through religious activities of the day, church attendance. We, we don't go to the beach on a nice warm day because we must be in church by our giving, by our hospitality, by our service of others. Believing that we will attain, earn favor from God, or pay Him back in some way. Which repudiates grace. We might even say things to our mind like, but I, I even did my time in the toddler room. I even I tithed one time. A, a tithe, an actual tenth, I did it! I've even stopped the casual swearing. So we can enter the pages of the story as Saul more easily than we might want to admit through the religion of Saul or through the perspective of being right when not, in reality it's on shaky ground. For all the truth we think we know, for all the good we believe we've done, there's only one thing that truly matters. And even if we don't want to enter as Saul, if we don't, we may miss the reminder of God's incredible love and pursuit of us. The only thing that matters is, have we been arrested by Jesus? I hope that word makes sense. It will as I go if it doesn't yet. See, we can be very religious and never actually be in relationship with our living God. Has Jesus saved you not just from your sins, but from yourself? Has he transformed you and given you a whole new identity, not just a whole new behavior? The power of the gospel at work for salvation. Not just for one day, but for today. His love for us is so great, higher, wider, deeper, longer than we could ever know, he will do anything to pursue us. And if, if you have never, if you're within sound of my voice and you would say, I've never sensed the, the pursuit of God, you are simply missing it. He is actively doing it right now. You're within sound of His word and the proclamation of His gospel, the evidence of Jesus alive rescuing sinners. He is personally loving and pursuing you. It may not be pleasant, Jesus may do anything to pursue us, and it may not be pleasant. He may, in fact, blind us and break us. 
This is Saul's story. What would it take to get his attention? The one, it's ironic, though, the one that believed he was spiritually enlightened was actually spiritually blind. In order for him to come to truly see, Jesus blinds him physically and makes him immediately dependent. The one who was ultimately a rogue leader on his own mission in a moment must be led by others. A.W. Tozer said, and it's been quoted in a lot of different ways, but I, I think this is close. It is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has broken him completely. And I would say, far better to be hurt by God than to never be touched by Him. Now, I often have to get the attention of my son, who is four. I'm sure parents can relate to this. For some reason, my words don't always get through. He has an incredible, maybe spiritual or anti-spiritual gift of being able to filter out my voice, even at a pretty high level. (laughs) And so, every time, I naturally, with patience, come down to his level (laughs) and seek to look him in his eyes and to father him into the correct course. And when that doesn't work, I will grab him by the arm at his level almost every time. And because he's four, I can get my hand completely around his bicep. So he's in a good (laughs) grip. One day that will probably be reversed. I hope I'm not still having to parent in this way at that point. And when that still doesn't work, I begin to squeeze until eventually he looks at me in the eyes and says, ow. And I say to him, Freddie, I am trying to get your attention, but you seem not to be listening to my words. How can I get your attention? Now I have it. And then Freddie says, oh, Father, I'm so remorseful. Would you forgive me of my sins? Many of you have been in my home, so you can give testimony. (laughs) If I get a, okay, Dad, I feel like that's a win. But our good and perfect Father, which I am not, wouldn't hurt us, would He? But yes, He would. For our good. Acts 9.16 The Lord is saying to Ananias what he is going to do for Saul. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I was very intentional how I said that. The Lord is telling Ananias what he is about to do for Saul. Not to him. When I parent out of my flesh, I am often doing it for me to get a behavior that I want that brings more peace or quiet into the home. When I am parenting with the Father's heart, I am doing it for Freddie 
And it may look the same. But I don't think the Lord meant physical suffering primarily. I think he knew the storyline of what was about to come. And Saul, maybe greater than anyone, suffers physically. As he, he stood and approved the stoning of Stephen, he too will be stoned to the point where they left because they thought he was dead, but he didn't die. God didn't let him die. And on and on. You can read in Corinthians uh, a list of many of his physical sufferings that he endured that likely brought him closer to Jesus. Because suffering, unlike almost anything, brings us closer to the heart of the one who suffered, the suffering servant. But even then, I don't necessarily believe that the Lord was saying, and certainly not punitively, I'll make him suffer, I'll teach him, because look at the suffering he caused to the bride, and ultimately to me. I think he's speaking of a heart, an emotion, and a will that's about to radically be changed. He's about to give something to Saul, his heart, his eyes, his passion for lost people that ultimately leads to hurt, longing, and brokenness. We read in Philippians 3.8, Paul gives this testimony. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, We know that the Greek word is much stronger there. I count them as refuse, as filth, in order that I might gain Christ. By his testimony, he's come to learn suffering. Though he has suffered physically by this point, the suffering he's expressing is internal. I've suffered the loss of all things. My pride is being stripped away. Everything that I thought I knew, I was wrong. Every advancement, everything I achieved, my authority, my position, it's all stripped. I have suffered that loss, and I count that as gain. Jesus did that for me. I needed that. That's his testimony. In his letter to the Galatian believers, Galatians 4.19, he speaks to them with this same anguish. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish, the anguish of childbirth, which I'm sure some moms would take exception to on this Mother's Day. But nonetheless, Paul is trying to express an internal anguish until Christ is formed in you. That that's this new heart, just like he was zealous and relentless to persecute the church, he is now zealous and relentless to build it up. And he's suffering anguish internally because he can't do enough He can't give enough, and he's given it all. I believe this is the suffering primarily that the Lord is teaching him. Saul's heart and soul came to hurt as God's hurts for the lost. And Saul's sanctification would grow through suffering. As his maturity grew, so did his humility. A man that was so arrogant becomes so humble. We see this progression Now, Paul was bold also, but boldness and humility are not contradictory. He's bold in his humility. Three three verses, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and 1 Timothy. These are letters he wrote, and starting with the earliest, Corinthians being probably one of the earliest he wrote, Ephesians being somewhere in the middle, and Timothy he instructs toward the end of his life. 
we see this progression of his claim about God's love and pursuit in his life. 1 Corinthians 15.9 For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because of my persecution for the church of God. Ephesians 3.8 To me, though I am the very least of the saints, even still this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see? The least of the apostles to the least of the saints of God's people, to what does he say to Timothy as he instructs him in 1 Timothy 1.15? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least of all sinners. Now we can't press that too hard because he had different motives in his letters. But we see a progression in his life growing in humility through sanctification, through the sanctification of suffering, both physically and emotionally, spiritually. Well, not everyone has the testimony of Saul. How many of you, I'm curious, by a show of hands, how many of you would say your testimony of being saved by Jesus was Fairly instant, fairly like you have that you have a day in mind, uh, maybe even an event or a moment where it's like it's clear it happened in that moment. How many of, is that true of? It would be good for testimony one to another. We can look around. Less than half. How many of you would say it was it was more gradual? You're not actually sure the moment that you were saved and filled with the Spirit. You just know. It increased, it moved, maybe it was from a young age, maybe it was over a season in life, and you're, you can't pick a day. It was a gradual surrendering and saving. How many of, is that more accurate to? Yeah, more than half, maybe two-thirds. Some of our story will be dramatic, instant testimony of Jesus saving us. He found us and rescued us, just like he did Saul. Others will be gradual, eventual, quiet. Nonetheless, God's incredible love and pursuit of us. Our testimony won't be the same as Saul's. I would guess there would be no hands in the room that said, I was blinded for three days, and then he made me see. But God's incredible love and pursuit that changes everything is also our story. The testimony and the example may sound different with different details, but the heart of God, the relentless love and pursuit of God is the same. And do we know it? Do we know it, church? Be reminded of it if you need to hear it again. He not just has loved and pursued you, He is loving and pursuing you. He is saving us. Ephesians 2, verse 11, here's Paul. Just let me jump back and forth between Paul and Saul, right? Because he hasn't quite gone through the full transition of his identity till we get to the end or end of this passage in Acts 9. Ephesians 2.11, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and that's just about everyone, unless you have a, a strict and specific Jewish heritage, you are a Gentile, a non-Jew. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, because there was a division. Man, if you weren't circumcised, you weren't one with God's people. So you were lesser. You were outside 
That's the argument Paul is making. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Has Jesus arrested our heart? The one who is at work arresting others for God finds himself arrested by God. Has God arrested our heart? He does not need an invitation. This passage makes that clear. But what if we invited him? What if we today said, Lord, arrest my heart more fully. Capture it. Captivate it. I'm giving it over to you. It will likely hurt and it will likely humble because we do not yet even know what he's asking us to lose for his sake. We may have been believers for decades. We are not done growing into his likeness. And he is not done longing to arrest our heart. He does not need an invitation, but what if we give him one? What if, what if we needed to lose our sight in order to truly see? Small price to pay. The greatest price has already been paid. Well, we won't have the testimony of Saul, though we share the incredible love of, and pursuit of God. We won't have the same ministry as Saul. No one ever has. And yet we share the same call to make him known to be his witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and to the ends of the earth saul would become the missionary to the ends of the earth it's the trajectory of where acts is going we too have been given that same commission that same call our jerusalem may be redmond or the city that you find yourself living in our judea is the greater seattle area likely however you determine those fields your workplace, your school, your community that you live and play and shop in. The Samaria is simply those that we wouldn't otherwise associate with. Whether we simply don't resonate, whether we tolerate, or whether we outright hate. That's our Samaria. And for others, we are their Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. A call to go where the gospel has not been proclaimed or has not been heard. We all share that call. We won't have the same ministry as Saul. We're not all told to go in the same way. But we share the same call to be his witnesses. So what needs to change? Perhaps what needs to change most is our prayer life. It's one of the first things we see change in Saul. He is praying it's possible that he has never prayed before. What, it, what we do know is true is he has never truly prayed. Because he is now spirit-filled. He has never truly prayed with the Spirit for God's glory. He's been religious, and so he's fasted before. Maybe his whole life he's fasted. But if any prayers he gave, they were... Mere rote 
reciting of prayers. Now he's praying out of his heart. We see him there blinded and broken. We're not told his prayer, but certainly it must have been something like, Help, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Use me, Lord. God is already at work answering prayer. He's arranged for Ananias to come and to be a part of the story and to bring healing. He's already answering prayer. But even more than that, God is already answering Stephen's prayer from the end of Acts 7. You remember Stephen's prayer? Acts 7, verse 60. Stephen, as he is being stoned, and as Saul is standing there giving approval, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. God is answering that prayer as he is forgiving Saul, as he is restoring, renewing, redeeming. While Saul stood there and helped silence Stephen's ministry, silence his voice, God is about to open Saul's mouth and continue the ministry that got shortened in Stephen. God's grace, His call. How does our prayer life need to change to sound likely similar to Saul's help, Lord, forgive me, Lord, use me, Lord? Lord, You have loved and pursued me with Your incredible love. You have sent me and planted me to be Your love and pursuit of others. And maybe this above everything, remind me that none are outside of Your reach. I know I need that reminder again that comes powerfully through this story. And I wonder if you do. Remind me that none are outside of Your reach. Your reach into Saul's life shows us that. Jesus can show up to anyone He wants to at any time. He is not hindered. He, God can send an angel. God is not limited for how He can speak and intervene and erupt, interrupt to arrest us, to track us down. Though that doesn't seem to be the common way that He does it. And let's not miss that he calls and uses Ananias, an ordinary disciple who we would know nothing about if it wasn't for this moment and him saying yes. First, he's in tune with the Spirit to hear his voice. And he ultimately says yes to go. To be his hands, to be his feet. The same God that had just shown up to Philip in a form of an air by sending an angel who spoke clearly to Philip through the Spirit, who... The same God who sends Jesus to show up on the road and meet Saul. If he can do all that, why is he going to this ordinary disciple over here and saying, I want you to be a part of this story. I want you to go and bring healing. I want you to go and speak into this man's life. Because God is using His people filled with the Spirit to fulfill His mission. And that's us to be His witnesses, to be in tune with His voice, to say yes, ordinary disciples who hear Him and say yes when He asks us of something. But I bet you respond like I respond 
which is like Ananias responded. When we think God might be speaking to us of someone to serve, someone to love, a lost one to pursue. You can't be serious, Lord. Not him, not her. I mean, that amount of, as I see it, that amount of effort or work would be wasted. Send me to the fertile soil. We have a commission to be sowers of seed. We have wisdom that can see the fertile soil, but we are not exclusively called to the fertile soil. From what Ananias heard of Saul, he could have easily said, God, this is not your voice. How could this be your will? Thankfully, he's in tune enough to know God is speaking, but he still pushes back. Have you ever done that? Lord, I know this is you, but I really don't like this idea. I think, how about another, how about another plan? How long do we, does that take? Some of us have been so far removed from that conversation that we wonder why God's not even speaking into our life today. Because we left him back here where he was speaking. For some, we have a chance to go back and go, okay, I heard you. Sometimes, for some of us, that has passed. But we walk in forgiveness and then we live in grace. Hear and be reminded this morning of God's incredible love and pursuit of all who are lost. And hear this, church. None are outside of His reach. None. Not your Muslim neighbor. Not your rebellious daughter or son-in-law. Neither your hardened brother or brother-in-law. Nor your biology teacher or lesbian professor Neither your atheist boss nor an arrogant politician. Neither a communist dictator nor an ISIS terrorist. And above all, neither you nor me. None are outside of the reach of God. And we will never love and long to see saved anyone more than Jesus already does. What we simply have to wrestle with is His timing and His will. It's what we were praying about in the upper room this morning. As, as in confession, as I pray for the lost to be found, for these loved ones in my life, I feel like I'm praying brokenness, blindness, hardship, something, loss into their life. Because that's my story. And that's Saul's story. And it's so many of our story that to get our attention, what did it look like for God the Father to get on our level and put His hand around our arm and squeeze? And yet it's our story. And I long for it to be a different way. God is not limited. He can get our attention however He wants. But far better to be hurt by God than never touched by Him. So Lord, get them. Track them down. And use me. And maybe one person comes to mind, maybe a few. And on Mother's Day, I'm certain that there's some moms and some dads that are 
thinking of sons, daughters, sons-in-laws, daughters-in-laws, brothers, sisters. As we hear and respond today, let's cry out to our Lord for them, for their souls, that they might know life and joy, that they might find healing and rest. And let's be also praying, Lord, arrest my heart all the more, that I'm in tune with your voice, that I hear you and that I follow you. Let me read Paul's words here from 1 Timothy 2. Incredible reminder. Toward the end of his life, likely he's writing this in prison when he can't go in the same freedom that he used to go. And so he's sending out his messengers, disciples, to do the ministry, to continue it. And he reminds Timothy, first of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, specifically for kings, for all who are in high positions. How faithfully do you pray for the soul of your leaders? Not that they change their policies or become more tolerable, but for the soul. If God can reach and change a terrorist to an evangelist, Imagine what he could do with some of the platforms that this world has already given if he would save a soul. And we long for that. For kings and all who are in high positions that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. How might He be sending us or inviting us to share in His heart, to intercede in prayer, to go in faith? Quickly quickly as I end, I feel like I need to end here. We need this final reminder of the power of the Gospel in our present life. None of us have the same testimony as Saul. None of us will have the same ministry as Saul, though we share much in common. What we share fully is we have the same identity as Saul. Our identity is in Christ. The incredible love and pursuit of God is not merely a momentary experience. It is a moment-by-moment reality. Our salvation does not just change our eternity. It changes our identity. It's the reason Saul is given a new name, Paul. There's also some irony there because Saul, the first king of Israel, the one that was taller by stature, stronger by stature than any, ultimately was arrogant. Paul means small in stature. Humble. His identity has been changed. This is why baptism is so essential, crucial. You'll see the repeated theme here, won't you? That there's no time like the present. As they are saved, they are baptized. Saul is filled with the Spirit before his water baptism. I'll leave that one alone for now. But let's look at the timeline. Why then be baptized? He's saved and filled with the Spirit. Why be water baptized as a middle-aged man? Because his identity has been transformed. Because going into the water is going into the death of Christ. Coming out of the water is being risen with Christ and living with Him. It's not just some symbolism of cleansing and forgiveness, though that is there. It is a whole new identity. It is born again, out of water, in the Spirit. 
Nicodemus says to Jesus, how could a man be born again? How could he go back into his mother's womb? No. No, but spiritually and through the symbol and power of baptism, you emerge in Christ. A whole new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. There's no time like the present. I don't have water in this tub, but it's a nice day and there's a lake not too far, so let me know. Ephesians 2, 19. Here's our new identity. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Saul is given a new name because he's given a new identity. But actually, first comes the new title given by Ananias. Did you catch it? It's not apostle. Apostle is given to him by Jesus. The new title he gives, the very first word that Ananias says to Saul is brother. Because your identity is now a son of God. And you are joining a whole new family. You have a whole ever-expanding family of brothers and sisters. Imagine how comforting that must have been to hear as he's blinded there, his whole life has been changed, to hear his new brother, he's never met this man, welcome him in. If anyone was unworthy of being welcomed into the family, it was Saul, and he is being welcomed. That's incredible grace. We are forever changed. This is our identity. We are sons and daughters of a king. We are members of one family. Do not miss this. We're not just saved from sin for eternal life. We are saved to a living hope. We are saved to something now. And we may have been saved for decades, but God's love and pursuit continues today. Why do I hammer on this? Because I continue to hear more and more believers speak contrary to their new identity in Christ. I'll give you a couple examples. A good friend of ours. I, I'm, just, I'm just an anxious person. And look, I can see my mother was a worrier. My grandmother was a worrier. I'm just a worrier. No, you are not. You are a daughter of the king. That is not your identity. You are not an anxious person. Your reality is now peace. Take it. I'm just an angry person. I'm just an angry person. The smallest things just set me off. Four-year-olds. I don't even know why. I just, I'm an angry person. My dad was an angry person. My grandfather, man, you should have seen them. I guess I'm doing pretty good. No, you are not. You're a son of God. That's your identity. Take peace. Take kindness. Put it on. Put off the anger. The old is gone. The new has come. Put on patience and joy. I'm just a fearful person. I just live with fear. I just have to manage it. I'm fearful of not being able to care for my family, provide for them, keep them safe. I'm fearful of not doing enough with my life, achieving enough, earning enough, being enough. I I just live with this fear. I'm a fearful person. No, you are not. 
You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. That's your identity. You cast off fear and put on hope. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be courageous. I could go on. I've got a couple more. I'll stop. How do we put on the promises? How do we put on these promises? Ben, you make it sound so easy. That's what Paul said. Put off those things. Put on the promises of God. It's not a how question, church. It's a who question. Jesus Christ is in you if you've surrendered to Him, if you love Him, you trust Him, and desire to follow Him. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ is in you and will live through you. Let Him. That's your identity. Let's be reminded of that today. Team, come and prepare us to respond We have a few different angles. I feel like I was just getting going, but it's so gorgeous out there. I see your looks. I think it's enough. I think we're filled up. But let's respond. Before we move and enjoy family and fellowship and hopefully good food or sunshine, I hope all those things are in your future today. Before that, let's respond to God's Word in our life. That we would come, be reminded of what He's done. For all who have been baptized, for those not yet baptized, we all are invited to the table being reminded of what Christ has done. And as we receive the bread and the juice, reminded that Christ is in us. We have been crucified with Him. And it is He that lives in us. So Lord, live through us. And as we go, maybe with that heaviness of heart, with that loved one, that lost one, that God is sending, to us, sending us to or simply asking us to renew intercession for. They are not outside of his reach and they are certainly not outside of his love. We go to be his witnesses in every place. Thank you, Jesus.